This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, January 22nd, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. We have a new president, sure, but the old one is still awaiting his trial before the U.S. Senate. But what's the point? He's out of office. It's over, right? Cato's Gene Healy discusses why the U.S. Senate should take this impeachment trial more seriously than they did the last one. I live just outside of Louisville, Kentucky. The president won this state handily, but even among the president's bigger fans that I know, they're ready for him not to be a part of their regular news day. Well, he's worked out a way uh, to to stay center stage even when he's not president any longer. If and when there's an impeachment trial in the Senate, you will be living rent-free in our heads once more. Richard Nixon after he lost the presidency, he said, you know, you're not going to have Dick Nixon to kick around anymore, but uh, we're going to be kicking around Donald Trump and Donald Trump related matters for uh, as long as this question is before the Senate. The Constitution seems to assume that impeachment is something that happens to people who are in office. And as of this recording, the president has been out of office for a little over two hours. Um, is it constitutional to uh, have a trial for someone uh, who is no longer in office? Uh, it is constitutional, and it's been done before. Uh, that said, you can understand why uh, people uh, are receptive to the argument that it's not. And that's not just uh, Senate Republicans who would like a convenient way to to duck the issue, but just anyone looking at the Constitution, uh, the the text seems to assume uh, someone that that's in office. Uh, you know, the, it says the president and other civil officers officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of high crimes and misdemeanors, treason, bribery, other high crimes and misdemeanors. Uh, so the text seems to assume that. There's, it's a sitting official. Uh, and as you say, the president's not president anymore as of uh, noon on January 20th. Uh, but that reading, I don't think, is dispositive. Uh, the text alone doesn't get you there in the way that it would if it contained an outright ban on impeaching once and possibly future office holders. Uh, and the structural and historical evidence for late impeachments is pretty strong. Uh, for example, the, the Constitution doesn't only say that removal from office is the sole penalty. Uh, it offers another optional penalty, disqualification to hold any uh, future office of uh, honor, trust, and profit under the United States. And you have to assume that the framers wanted that penalty to mean something. Uh, if you're going to say no trial for anybody that's out of office the minute they're out of office, then it would make this disqualification penalty a dead letter. Uh, any office holder could uh, prevent it, uh, make sure that it didn't stick just by strategically quitting at any time before conviction. Uh, that would be pretty perverse because you're only going to quit uh, if you don't like your chances in a Senate trial. Uh, if you don't like the, your chances, maybe that's because the evidence of guilt uh, is 
particularly strong. Uh, so the only people that would be vulnerable to this penalty would be, uh, you know, the people who uh, where the evidence of guilt was less clear. Uh, anybody that's clearly guilty can can just frustrate the the aim of the the, the penalty by uh, by quitting right at any any time before two thirds of the Senate votes for con conviction. And if you wanted to really push the limits of, of the argument, you, you could even say that uh, that uh, the disqualification penalty is a dead letter regardless of, of what the official does, because removal's automatic upon conviction. So the, the second you have two-thirds vote in the Senate, you've got an ex-official. Uh, if you can't continue proceedings, if you can't get to the second vote about whether to uh, uh, impose this disqualification penalty, uh, then it, it never works. Uh, you know, the argument would be, uh, Oh, he's no longer in office uh, because we just removed him. And how can you have another vote to penalize a private citizen? I can actually hear that argument being made. Oh, someone uh, will make it I'm in sure. my head. Uh, and uh, just one other thing from history: the very first impeachment uh, trial uh, was conducted after uh, the uh, target of that impeachment, uh, Senator William Blunt. Uh, had already skipped town and quit quit off it. He'd already actually been removed uh, by the Senate. And uh, the Senate had a vote upon whether they had jurisdiction. They ruled they had jurisdiction. They conducted the trial. Similar thing happened uh, in with the Grant Secretary of War. Uh, so you have two, two precedents for the Senate tri impeachment trial of a former official. I think that all weighs up to a pretty powerful case that uh, that this is something that the Constitution permits. In this particular case, you have a president who uh, the the most striking ev events or actions that he took was two weeks before he was going to leave office anyway. And if Congress is powerless to uh, impeach and remove and uh, pu otherwise punish uh, that president, well, I could imagine seeing that become a bit of a norm. Yeah, you, you saw a similar argument uh, in the House. I mean, President Trump was still president when the House uh, impeached him the second time, but uh, they obviously were not able to take their time about it because they uh, geared up for, for impeachment uh, a week before his term of office was ending. Uh, but a lot of the House Republicans said this is a snap impeachment. This is the, That was the buzzword. Uh, that uh, several of them used that, uh, you know, we don't have the ordinary process. We don't have enough, as, as much debate as we're supposed to have. Well, the thing is, uh, if you're going to say that uh, the House can't move rapidly to uh, impeach a president in his last weeks in office, you're basically saying that you're home free once you're a lame duck, you know, act out all you want. And in a way, the, this uh, this whole thing has been uh, a demonstration project, like a proof of concept of, for late presidential impeachments uh, that they can be done. And I think that's good because part of the reason for impeachment is not just to, to punish bad behavior or to remove a potentially dangerous office holder. It's also to send a, a message uh, going forward to future presidents in this case. And I think the being able to gear up and do an impeachment and 
do a trial after the person has left office is a signal to future presidents that even in the last weeks of their term, that they're vulnerable to this ultimate sanction. Uh, that would be a good message to send uh, because in the past, we've seen that uh, presidents tend to get away with more. For example, they uh, they tend to save their most controversial pardons to the last weeks of their, their presidency. Uh, you know, Bill Clinton, had, I think on the very last day of his presidency, uh, pardoned Mark Rich, uh, this uh, fugitive uh, financier uh, whose ex-wife donated half a million dollars to the Clinton Presidential Library. Uh, that looked pretty shady, uh, but he figured, you know, I'm not going to be impeached again. It's the last day of my presidency. George W. George H. W. Bush uh, pardoned five Iran-Contra figures in the last couple weeks of his presidency. Uh, you know that was a, a clearly self-interested pardon. He was likely to be called as a witness uh, during that trial, and he put an end to it with a, a, a raft of presidential pardons. He actually wrote in his diary about how he was worried that this would put kind of a downer on his legacy. He wasn't worried about getting impeached for it. And maybe that's something that presidents ought to be worried about. So uh, people have complained about the costs or the distraction or the uh, disruption that the, this particularly late impeachment uh, might cause. Uh, but I think that you have to look at the benefits side of the ledger, too, and the message it can send to future presidents that they're not free of this grave penalty in their last weeks in office would be a very valuable thing, a very valuable change to the incentives that they currently operate under. What follows from disqualification, uh, conviction and disqualification? What's, what, what is the natural consequence of that? Well, there's, there's some debate over what offices, let's say that Donald Trump was uh, convicted by two-thirds of the Senate, he can't be removed anymore, but he can be convicted. And then what they would do is take a separate vote on the disqualification penalty. There's some debate over the particular language that the Constitution uses there and whether elected offices are uh, among offices of honor, trust, profit under the United States. At a minimum, it sounds like to me like you may never be a contractor for the U.S. government again. Well, it would it would mean at a minimum that uh, you couldn't put Donald Trump on the Supreme Court, not that anyone was going to, and that he couldn't serve as, uh, uh, the, I don't know, the uh, Secretary of Homeland Security in a future Republican administration. And it could also mean that he can't uh, run for the presidency again. What it doesn't mean, despite a viral Facebook post that was going around, apparently, is that he's going to lose his pension and uh, stuff like that. There's a, uh, th this was something that uh, people got momentarily excited about, like it'll, it, it'll, his office expenses and his pension and these perks that former presidents get and shouldn't get uh, will he, he won't be able to get any of them uh, by virtue of the fact that he was impeached. Uh, that's not the way it works. The main law there is uh, something called the Former Presidents Act. It was passed in 1958, basically, because 
Harry Truman started complaining to uh, congressional leaders that he was going broke in the late 50s. And uh, so it gives the president a pension of uh, somewhere around uh, 200 grand a year right now, uh, up to a million bucks uh, a a year in travel expenses, some office costs. Um, But the former president's act says that the benefits apply unless the president's service ends uh, quote, by removal pursuant to Section 4 of Article 2 of the Constitution. In other words, the impeachment provisions. Now, uh, so President Trump gets to keep all this stuff or is eligible for for all this stuff on a technicality because uh, he, he wasn't convicted. He hasn't been convicted yet. And he wasn't convicted and removed while he was in office. Um, but, you know, maybe this whole issue is a good occasion to, to wonder why in the world we're paying uh, office expenses and travel budgets for uh, people that are are fabulously wealthy. Obama's worth more than $100 million. Trump, we don't quite know, but uh, you know, couple, at least a couple of billion. Uh, they could probably afford their own travel budgets. And even if it's only a rounding hour in the federal debt, uh, it's still probably worth cutting expenses where you can. Mitch McConnell, the Senate new Senate minority leader, I suppose, um, or likely Senate minority leader. Uh, if if I'm Mitch McConnell, I'm probably pretty upset with Donald Trump because if for if nothing else, he seems to have cost me the title of Senate majority leader. <laughs> uh, and uh, he seems to has indicated on multiple occasions. Uh, he gave a, a speech recently where. He said that the president and other powerful people instigated this event. Um, He said he would wait for uh, the evidence to present itself. But what does it mean for the leader of a party of the president's party to indicate very strongly that he's probably going to vote to convict? Well, it says something. You wonder why uh, more of them don't uh, share McConnell's resentment. you know, the, the president intentionally or not, uh, at least was reckless uh, and provoked an attack on their workplace, you know, on the coordinate branch of government. Uh, some of them, many of them were uh, hiding. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, uh, the House minority leader, was whisked to a secure location and had to Begged Jared Kushner to intervene with the president, um, and Mike Pence, uh, whose brother is a congressman, by the way, um, the Greg Pence is is there when uh, a uh, Trump-inspired mob chanting uh, "Hang Mike Pence" drives them out of the Senate chamber with with the Secret Service. You, you'd think more of them would take it personally, but but. Uh, apparently, it's all water under the bridge. McConnell's uh, signaling that uh, he's open to uh, the vote, a vote to convict. Uh, I think it is important. Uh, but uh, really, the fact that only 10 Republicans uh, were moved to cross party lines in the House uh, to vote for impeachment, uh, it, it's not a good comparison with the way the Republican Party handled Richard Nixon in 1974. In 1974, uh, of the 
Republicans who actually got the vote on impeachment, that would be the 17 uh, House Republicans in 1974 on the Judiciary Committee that voted on impeachment. You know, seven of them voted to impeach Nixon. Uh, all 10 of the uh, Republicans on that committee that, that voted against impeachment once the smoke and gun tape came out uh, announced that they were going to vote to impeach Nixon on the, the, the when, when the, the impeachment came to the, the floor of the House. Uh, it was Barry Goldwater, uh, the Senate minority leader at the uh, time, Hugh Scott, and the House minority leader at the time, John Rhodes, uh, so Kevin McCarthy's counterpart in 1974, that uh, the day before Nixon resigned, you know, went and uh, gave him a final push. Uh, and they didn't, uh, most of them didn't pay much of a political price for doing the right thing. The, the time in the, the four out of, I think, uh, five of those House Republicans on the Judiciary Committee were up for re-election and four of them won uh, their next re-election. Uh, you know, the Republicans took the presidency in 1980. Uh, so it wasn't the exact, the time in the wilderness was pretty short. But uh, unfortunately, uh, at least judged by the, the debate in the House uh, a week before the uh, the president left office, the impeachment vote, uh, a lot of House Republicans now uh, are committed to this view that, uh, it, to paraphrase Richard Nixon, if the president does it, that means it's not impeachable. And there may be a price to be paid for uh, some of the Republicans who did cross party lines to vote for it. There's already a significant movement to uh, strip Liz Cheney uh, of her number three position in the House leadership. So there may be a penalty for uh, some of these Republicans who who did cross party lines to support impeachment. So will this destroy the Republican Party? I, I've heard that uh, I've heard Rand Paul say that if they vote, if the Senate votes to convict that a third of the party will leave. Uh, Senator Lindsey Graham has said that uh, a vote to convict uh, would essentially destroy the Republican Party. What do you think? I don't know. I mean, are they going to split into R's and Q's? Uh, and P's. Apparently, they? P is now on the on the table. Oh yeah, Patriot Party. Um, yeah, who knows? Uh, certainly, it seems a substantial uh, chunk of the Republican Caucus is uh, committed to this diehard view that uh, the president did it; it wasn't impeachable. Um, but if if this does lead to a, a split or a, a a real rift in the Republican Party, it's completely self-imposed. My rejoinder to Rand Paul was essentially, I think a third of your party is going to leave no matter what. And you kind of get to choose which third. <laughs> Why would they leave no matter what? I don't think it's the same group of people who are going to leave depending on whether they vote to convict or acquit a different third. Well, I guess that's one reason that uh, this idea that a impeachment of or that an impeachment trial of an ex-president, the idea that it's unconstitutional, that's one reason that idea is appealing, because it would allow them, allow Republicans in the Senate not to take a stand on this, to have a, a constitutional out. Uh, I think it's pretty clear that 
when this argument comes from, say, Lindsey Graham, it's really not constitutional fidelity that's motivating this uh, this rationalization. Uh, but I, if I had to guess, I think you would see uh, you're going to see more Republican votes to convict the president in his second impeachment trial than you did in the first, where only Mitt Romney was willing to make that move. I don't know if uh, that will, if that means that uh, 17 Republicans, which is what you would need for a conviction. I don't, I don't know if they'll get there, uh, but uh, I suppose we'll see. Gene Healy is author of The Cult of the Presidency. He's also a Cato Institute vice president. And now a quick thank you to a Cato podcast sponsor. John Beatty, thank you for your support of the Cato Daily Podcast and the Cato Institute. Supporters like you make our work possible, advancing individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. And you can subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.